Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, the assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in Politics. Today I'm speaking with Gabriel De Benedetti, national correspondent for New York Magazine, about his new book, The Long Alliance, The Imperfect Union of Joe Biden and Barack Obama from Henry Holt. The Long Alliance follows the trajectory of the Obama-Biden relationship from the U.S. Senate to the presidency. De Benedetti highlights the tensions and differences between these two extremely powerful men. The difficulties of their relationship appear most vividly in comparison to the typical bromance portrayed by the media. Gabriel, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, you know, uh, before jumping into the book, and, and this is a, a really fascinating topic, obviously, uh, Biden, especially even Obama in the news, basically every single day. Uh, you know, before talking about the book, I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and why you decided to write this. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So as as you mentioned, I'm the national correspondent at New York Magazine, which means I write about national politics, current affairs. Um, but I've been covering national politics and especially democratic politics for a very long time. Well, feels like a long time for me, maybe not for some people. But, uh, you know, I covered the Obama administration for Reuters, covered uh, a, a little bit of the tail end of the Obama administration and the 2016 election and the early Trump days for Politico have been with New York Magazine since then. But uh, Obama and Biden have been two people who have really loomed over everything from the start, and they've been really two of the protagonists of my reporting career. Um, but I decided to write this because, you know, the, the short version is in the um, hours and then days after Biden was finally declared the winner of the 2020 election. There was a line of commentary coverage reporting, too, that really struck me as um, wrongheaded in some ways and incomplete in another. And that was that the idea uh, that reflected the idea that Biden would represent a third term of Obamaism or, you know, of, of the Obama administration. And the reason that I objected to that was basically because I knew that they look at change making differently. I knew that they were not necessarily always seeing eye to eye in terms of specific policies. And I knew that Biden in particular um, was thinking a lot about his place in history, but also about the long arc of his own career, which of course had been going for three decades, three and a half decades before anyone had ever heard of someone named Barack Obama. Um, So obviously the Obama-Biden years were very formative to him, but they weren't the whole story. And so what I really wanted to do with this book was explain uh, the true nature of that relationship, because, you know, it is commonly thought of as this bromance, which everyone knows. And it is undoubtedly true, as my reporting has shown, I think, that this is the closest relationship between a president and vice president in modern history, and certainly between a president and former president, but that it's a, a very complicated one as well. And that the idea that this is some sort of uncomplicated uh, you know, friendship where they just get along and talk once in a while about what's on TV just doesn't reflect reality. And it's important to understand the true nature of interaction between the two men and what they've learned from each other and what, where they still disagree uh, in order to understand today's politics, but also really how we got to this point. So the book covers, you know, starts in 2003, runs through the earliest days of 2022 um, to really try and lay out for folks how we got here. 
You know, let, let's uh, let, why don't we start at the very beginning uh, when sure. Obama first enters the the national spotlight at the DNC. Uh, Obama was a Senate candidate at this point. Can you tell us about Obama's speech at this convention and also sure. a little bit about Biden's speech that he also gave at this convention that everyone yeah. has probably forgotten about at this point? Uh, not not just at this point. I mean, it wasn't clear that anyone was paying attention to it in the moment. But let's start there. You know, the 2004 election we're talking about now may feel like ancient history, but it's still pretty, pretty present in the origin story of this um, of this relationship. You know, Biden had been in the Senate for a very long time, was supportive of John Kerry after deciding not to make his own run. Kerry had been his longtime colleague in the Senate. Uh, was the nominee at that point. Biden believed that he was going to be Kerry's secretary of state. As I report in the book, Kerry had informally basically offered him the job at this point, or they had been talking about it at least, and he would soon get an informal offer. So he's thinking a lot about his place in the world and his and, and particularly what he can do to set American foreign policy moving forward. This is at a time when the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan are extremely front and center in politics, particularly Iraq. Um, so he gives a speech at this convention that is, you know, basically not that interesting. You know, it is more or less what Kerry has been saying. It's very straightforward. We will be responsible abroad stuff, um, you know, totally standard democratic fare. But Biden understands that he's not going to be the story of the weekend. He's just over the week. He's just doing it for Kerry and because it's good to get your name out there. But no one's really paying attention because it's already obvious that, you know, the thing that everyone's going to remember from this convention had happened a few days earlier, and that was Barack Obama's speech. Obama was a state senator running for Senate. Uh, it was pretty obvious at that point that he was going to win and become the only black senator, someone who was this new, exciting voice in the national stage. Um, he gave this rousing speech that is often remembered now as the, you know, for having these lines about how it's not blue America or red America, it's the United States of America. That's actually misremembered slightly because those were lines that John Kerry also wanted to use, which is a little bit of a behind the scenes blow up that threatened to derail everything, but ultimately didn't. To make a long story short, Obama shows up as this sort of looks like this fully formed supernova. And people start asking him the question of when are you going to start running for president almost immediately, to which he sort of says, come on, I'm a state senator. Anyway, Biden is watching all this and is impressed, but, you know, sort of wary of it all because he's seen celebrities, celebrity politicians come and go. And at the end of the convention, uh, I recount a funny story where Obama gets to Logan Airport. This this convention is happening in Boston and he's mobbed by all the people there who are also leaving the convention and want his autograph or whatever. And he sort of shuffles off into a um, into the American Airlines lounge with his campaign manager campaign manager gets a phone call. Turns out it's Mikhail Gorbachev wanting to congratulate Obama on his speech. So the campaign manager hands off his phone and goes to walk and get some air and sort of reflect on what the hell is going on here. So campaign manager leaves the American Airlines lounge. Uh, this guy's name is Jimmy Colley, and he walks and sees Joe and Jill Biden standing there, no one noticing them, no one saying a word to them. He approaches them and basically says who he is. And Biden looks at him and sort of says in his gravest voice, you know, here's what you need to do to make sure this actually works. And he essentially acts as if he's going to give Jimmy Colley this advice that can only come from someone who has three and a half decades in the Senate. But instead, what he says is basically the most conventional wisdom thing possible, which is, you know, make sure Obama is a workhorse, not a show horse, you know, work on tough policy stuff in the Senate, keep your head down. It's fine advice. It's not particularly interesting, but this is basically the first time they interact. 
when Obama then gets to the Senate, you know, he joins Biden's committee and they have an okay relationship, but it's not a particularly good one or a particularly substantive one, because why would it be? Obama is 99th in seniority. Biden's running the committee. And it's clear from the first time they actually sit down to talk that they don't see eye to eye, that they just see the world in different ways. And so, you know, there's no reason to believe that these two are going to go down in history together or even really reason to believe that they know each other all that well at this point. So when Obama first enters the Senate, uh, you know, w- when did the, the notion that he would actually run for president start to become a reality? Uh, and, and also Biden himself, like what was Biden thinking this time, you know, about what 2008 might look like for him? Uh, Biden woke up the morning after Kerry lost and started thinking about running for president in 2008, which was not really a surprise to anyone because, of course, he would. He had thought about it before. He'd run in 1988, um, and it made some sense. Um, but he didn't say that out loud for a while. It was just widely assumed that that would be the case. Obama started facing questions about it you know, before he got to the Senate, but he said, this is ridiculous. And in fact, within his office, um, there was a lot of talk about the reality that, yeah, he would probably be vetted to be someone's vice president nominee, at least in 2008, because he had the sort of young, exciting uh, way about him. And people thought uh, thought very highly of him, but didn't, you know, he was very young and hadn't spent any time in the Senate yet. And he was also thinking pretty quickly after he got to the Senate that he didn't like it there very much and that he might consider running for governor in Illinois in 2010, leaving the Senate to do that. So this was all floating in the ether. But, you know, it took a long time before the 2008 campaign actually got off and running. It's important to remember that, it was overhanging everything that Democrats were doing at that point in the Senate, but it wasn't the whole context for it. And so when they finally get there to the beginning of the 2008 race, and it's pretty clear from the start that it's going to be essentially a race between Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, and then John Edwards to a certain degree, you know, that's sort of surprising to Biden, who thinks of himself as a real heavyweight and doesn't like that he's being totally overlooked. But his campaign starts off on the wrong foot. He makes some accidentally racist remarks about Obama, calling him the first clean, articulate African-American candidate. He has to apologize to Obama. And Obama is essentially saying, well, you know, there's no reason for him to care about Biden at all within the context of that race, which is borne out in reality, because they, they knew each other a little bit in the Senate and they interacted a tiny bit in the campaign trail. But Obama wins Iowa running away with it. And, you know, Biden ends up with one percent of the vote and has to drop out immediately. Yeah, what were the uh, the initial expectations like for Obama even before he announced? Obviously, you said that, you know, people were talking about him as this celebrity politician. Uh, but but when did it actually start to dawn on people that that Obama was going to be this the person? Yeah, he gave some really good speeches in the Senate, uh, in particular that people were really impressed by, including fellow senators. But it wasn't until he does so after Hurricane Katrina, he goes down to New Orleans and starts talking about uh, national politics in a new way. After having held off for a long time, you know, basically sitting down with his advisors and saying, "Let's not be a celebrity here. Let's be a real politician. Let's be a real." substantive policymaker and not try and make headlines, not go on national TV. After Katrina, that changes and he starts to get invites to all sorts of national democratic events or fundraising dinners in important states. And he goes on this uh, big trip that's very widely watched to Africa. Um, And after that, uh, some of his advisors, but also some of his colleagues see the way he's being covered and see an opportunity to really ignite something in the American people that they didn't really see 
as possible when it comes to other potential candidates. You know, Hillary Clinton was seen as obviously potentially quite inspiring as the first potential woman president, someone who had a lot of experience, but it was something different. Even in the coverage of Obama, you could tell that he had this ability to really unite people and excite people because his speeches were just, you know, clearly something else. Uh, And that was, you know, obviously we saw that he was a once in a lifetime politician, but that was becoming clear to people only slowly because, you know, usually first term senators keep their head down and, and don't do all that much. And he tried for a while to be, you know, Mr. Quiet, Mr. Responsible in the Senate. But the 2008 election, especially after the 2006 midterms, really just opened up for him. Walk us through how Obama settled eventually on picking Biden as his VP. What was what was that like behind the scenes? Uh, sure. And, you know, what, what was it the expectations like for Biden about being picked? Sure. Uh, It's a whole long saga, but I'll try and keep it somewhat short. You know, Obama and Clinton had this whole protracted, very uh, rough end of the primary process. And Biden was pretty upset to have been left out of the, you know, the primary after he had to drop out, was sort of watching from afar, talked to both of them a little bit, but was basically beside the point at that point. But when it comes time for Obama to start thinking about running for vice or for choosing a vice president, he sort of jokes around with his advisors and says, you know, we're going to win. Do I really need to choose someone, you know, who's going to share my legacy with me? He's not totally serious, but it does get to the reality that, you know, it wasn't obvious what he really should want at that point. But he does start talking about Biden almost immediately because it's conventional wisdom. Biden is someone who offered him the things he needed politically, um, but also when it came time for governing. On the latter front, you know, he was someone who uh, had a ton of foreign policy experience, had a ton of Uh, Capitol Hill experience, both of those things Obama knew that he was going to need. But on the political side, you know, they were explicitly looking for someone with gray hair, literally with gray hair, and Biden fit that. But, you know, there was also the political reality that there were a lot of voters, especially, uh, you know, middle of the road politically, at least that's how they presented themselves voters who were very wary of the first black president who thought that he was a secret radical of some sort. And this was, you know, obviously racist, but it was obviously something that that Obama knew that he had to combat and therefore was looking for someone who was essentially going to be able to be a, you know, comforting older white man politician. Biden fit a lot of what they were looking for in that in that respect. Um, but but but, you know, because they hadn't had a very good relationship in the Senate and at times Obama had thought that Biden was actually quite condescending to him. It was surprising to some of his aides that he was considering him so seriously. Uh, and he, then some asked Obama, you know, what is it? Why do you think you you want we think we should be looking at Biden? And beyond the conventional wisdom, Obama actually said, well, listen, you know, it's true that we're not best friends, but um, I was impressed with the way that Biden conducted himself and some of his answers during the primary debates when he was obviously not the main character, um, but had made some good points. But beyond that, you know, Biden is, meanwhile, watching all of this from Delaware, understands that he's going to be taken seriously as a contender and skeptical of the idea of for the first time in his career, because it's easy to forget that he was um, elected at 29, the first time in his career working for someone, basically. Um, and he says, you know, to his advisors, to his friends, do we really think it's a good idea for me to be considered to go work for this guy who's 19 years younger than me? And not only that, have to answer for all these, as he called it, you know, these eggheads who work for him who think they know better than me. So he was skeptical of that. And he also thought he had a reason, reasonable shot at being Secretary of State, which is a pretty great gig. So he was skeptical of it all. And in fact, said, I don't know if I want to be vetted, took a lot of prodding from his family at Obama's urging to be taken to, to, to agree to do it, um, agree to be vetted. But Obama immediately 
understands that Biden is going to be one of the serious contenders. And a lot of people think, obviously, it's going to be Biden. Obama tries to be careful about it, you know, narrows things down to three finalists. It's it's between Biden, Tim Kaine, who's then the governor of Virginia, and Evan Bayh, who's a senator from Indiana, former governor. And Obama does secret interviews with all three of them. And, you know, Bayh is a good option, but not a great one, and is sort of seen as the third option, obviously. Um, but at one point, Obama, after hearing from Kaine, who's seen as this young liberal changemaker in a southern state, uh, you know, Kane is essentially making the case, listen, Barack, I'm flattered. You know, this is great. But why would you why would you pick me? We're too similar because they are seen as having very similar political appeals at the time. And Obama says to Kane, um, as I report in the book, you know, well, Tim, you're the choice of my heart and Joe is the choice of my head. And sometimes I go with my heart and sometimes I go with my head. Uh, and ultimately, obviously, we know that he went with Biden. But Biden had, meanwhile, thought a lot about what he wanted that job to look like and had only agreed to really take this seriously after Obama had agreed to a few stipulations that Biden had, including, you know, making sure that uh, Biden had access to every piece of paper that Obama looked at, making sure that he was in the room for every decision um, and, you know, making sure that they met once a week in serious having their lunch. That That's now a famous, a famous thing that they did. Um, but Obama said, you know what, the world's a complicated place. So I'm going to need this kind of partnership. So he agreed to it. Um, it wasn't all that friendly all the time once they actually became running mates. But for the moment, at least, it seemed like an obvious choice for him to choose Biden. And, you know, no one was really all that shocked when it happened. And, you know, once they are, they're finally elected, obviously, you know, historical election, uh, they, you know, very soundly defeat McCain and and Palin. Uh, What is the the reception like in, in both camps? And what is that initial period like? Obviously, there is a massive financial crisis on the horizon that becomes the immediate thing that has to be dealt with. Uh, What is this initial period like? Yeah, it's very uneven for them because they're both trying to understand what the new Washington is going to be looking like. You know, they're both thrilled, obviously, to be president and vice president, um, but it wasn't obvious what their working relationship was going to look like. One of Biden's first moves was to hire uh, Ron Klain, who is now his chief of staff as president, but at the time was became his vice presidential chief of staff. And he had previously served as Al Gore's vice presidential chief of staff. The idea was, let's get someone here who can really help us figure out what the best version of this relationship is. So together with Klain, he tried to figure out the best rhythm for showing up in Obama's office, making sure he got in front of Obama on some specific things, but not bothering him. But one of the things that they tried to do very early on was make sure these lunches happened, make sure they were in the room together, basically constantly. And Obama was more or less fine with it because, you know, he, in the early days, how am I going to work with Obama was a major theme of Biden's life. Obama had other things to worry about than what is my working relationship going to be with Biden. So in that sense, it was unequal from the start. Um, But, you know, they are dealing with the financial crisis. And very early on, they're also dealing with things like what, you know, what they want their first policy pushes to be. So as the same time as they're sort of shocked by Republican recalcitrance and lack of willingness to work with them, um, especially in the House, the House side uh, on, on like the financial crisis on the stimulus package, Obama is going around to all of his staffers saying, let's do Obamacare. Let's get, st-. he didn't call it at that time, but let's get started on a healthcare reform. And Biden was the loudest voice internally saying, we should not be doing this right now. It does not make sense to go all in on a healthcare push, historically, healthcare is a political loser. It's a really difficult thing to move on. And we just don't have, you know, people will give us a pass is what he said to Obama, because they understand that we need to be focusing on the economy. But Obama was totally unconvinced by this, even though Biden kept, you know, referring to his experience. Uh, And eventually, Biden obviously comes on board because he was 
on board with the ultimate goal of reforming the healthcare system. But it took some time before they really figured out what the ideal version of them working hand in hand was, um, where, you know, one could be the advisor. But ultimately, as Obama got Biden to promise, you know, Obama said, listen, you can disagree with me all you want, but just don't let these disagreements come out in public. And ultimately, Biden said, fair enough, that's a good way to do this. So took some time. And there were some other long, drawn out disagreements, for example, over the future of the war in Afghanistan. But in the end, the way that they managed to, you know, have those debates mostly behind the scenes actually ended up strengthening the bond rather than uh, weakening it. By at sort of what point would you say that they actually started to, I don't, I don't know if friends is necessarily the right word, but, but at what yeah. point did they actually start to develop a real relationship with each other? Yeah. Late in the first term, I think there were some moments when Obama came to realize that he could really rely on Biden as a loyal defender. And, you know, Biden at one point late in their tenure pointed out that he calculated early on that they were spending seven hours a day together uh, at the peak. You know, you end up close to someone that you spend seven hours a day with no matter what, even if you can't stand the person. You know, I do think it's fair to say that they were friends, but at that point, it wasn't really a close personal friendship. It was more these two are allies who are working very closely hand in hand on a lot of things and know that they need to rely on each other. An important piece of context, of course, at all this time is that their families, you know, the way that they portray it is that they have these two intertwined families. That's not really true, but it is true that they have um, that they have quite a bit of uh I'm trying to figure out the right way, right way to phrase this, but there are points of contact. So, for example, one of Obama's daughters starts to play basketball with one of Biden's granddaughters. They become very close. Then, as a result, you know, Biden's daughter-in-law becomes very close with Michelle Obama. So there's a lot of points of contact and they do see each other as essentially two people who can't, who, who understand each other and who are able to have a real conversation about life in addition to what the, you know, what they're facing politically speaking in a way that basically no one else possibly can. Would you say that, you know, despite, uh, you know, maybe behind the scenes uh, squabbling that, that the two, how do the two of them think about the relationship that they were portraying to the outside world? Were they very sensitive to this or was this something that they figured, oh, our, our allies or the media will will help uh, clean up the uh, the rough edges of, of our of our relationship? Biden always had to think about this a lot more than Obama did, because at the end of the day, Obama was the main character of American politics. And Biden, you know, was a sideshow for a lot of this time and not necessarily always in a negative way, but he just wasn't the point. Uh, but he was always very cognizant of what he calls his brand. Um, and, you know, after the midterms in particular, he does start to think a lot about what his image is going to be. And they do decide to lean into this bromance idea. Um, but I don't want to pretend that it's all calculated. They know exactly what they're doing, especially among, you know, for liberals who are looking for some sort of like buddy, buddy cop partnership, um, that that's really going to like help them politically speaking. They understand that they're really feeding into that. But at the same time, um, there is some truth to the fact that like, if you look at say after the midterms, where their relationship was at that point versus where previous president, vice president relationships were, they were just, on a, it was just a completely different kind of thing. I mean, you look at Bush and Cheney, it's just a totally different, uh, you know, a totally different kind of relationship. You look at, um, you know, at, at any of them, really, even Clinton and Gore, which was seen as relatively okay at that point, there were strains, especially as Gore was starting to think about running for president in in uh, 2000. Um, at the time, you know, we can get into this, but at the time, Obama wasn't really thinking about the possibility that Biden might be running for president at, once they were done in office together. So that really wasn't one of the things that was overhanging them until quite late in the game. 
Another thing that I you know, think is is very key, obviously, Biden, uh, as a senator, was known for having this expertise on foreign policy, very much focused on that. Uh, can you talk about how the two of them worked on foreign policy together? Um, and maybe, you know, some of Biden's uh, sense or the relationship with maybe some of Obama's advisors, uh, what sure. that, that broader relationship was like, but specifically maybe around foreign policy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, one thing is that Obama, Biden always wanted to make sure that everyone understood that he was Obama's closest advisor. It's not always obvious that Obama thought of it that way. There are times when it's true and there are times when it's not. And it depends on the issue. But when we think of someone like something like, you know, I think by far the best example, when you think about the foreign policy interactions, uh, the best example is the 2009 era debates over the war in Afghanistan, which I alluded to earlier. Obama was fielding a ton of requests from military leadership to increase troop levels pretty massively. But Biden from the start was very skeptical. And only recently, by the way, only last year did we see the full arc of this debate end when Biden decided to pull all, you know, to end the war for once and for all. Um, But that was based on the experience of 2009. Very early on, uh, Biden had sat down with Bob Gates, who was by, who was Obama's incoming Secretary of Defense, but was actually a holdover from the from the Bush years, and had worked for seven presidents at that point. And Biden said to him, "You know, what do you think would be the best way for me to act in these meetings?" And Gates essentially said, "You should do what George H. W. Bush did for Reagan, which is take a step back, don't be a primary voice in the room when everyone's in the room, and hold off, and then be a voice for Obama later." Biden thought that was terrible advice. He thanked Gates and said, you know, thank you for the for this. But he essentially said, no, I want to be a player here. I don't want to I'm not lowering myself by making sure that I can shape these debates. And early on, Obama, in fact, sits Biden down and says, I need you to play bad cop for me. I need you to probe every single thing that the military leadership is saying. I need you to be super, you know, even when you're being even when you think you're being annoying, just go too far. Make sure that every single angle is played out here. And, you know, that was never articulated to the military leadership, but it was pretty obvious that Biden was by far the most skeptical person in the room on a lot of the, you know, military pushes on Afghanistan in particular. Uh, And this played out over the course of many months. You know, ultimately, Obama actually did a lot of troop increases that Biden really, really did not approve of whatsoever. But there's no question that Biden was absolutely critical to shaping the shaping those debates behind the scenes, um, even when it really angered people like Gates, people like Hillary Clinton, who was the Secretary of State, and certainly the military leadership, you know, General Petraeus, McChrystal, folks like that, who who came to really not stand Biden whatsoever. So, you know, for you, if you were to think about anything in the in the, the, the two terms of the Obama presidency, uh, there's anything in particular uh, about their relationship that you think is you know re- really indicative of, of what it was like. Uh, how would you sort of describe what their their working relationship was like? Where they were by the time that the uh, the Obama's presidency was coming to a close uh, and uh, Clinton was first announcing that she was going to start to run for president. Yeah. Well, I think that that, I don't know if this is indicative, but it's absolutely, you know, one of the most, one of the biggest inflection points of the entire, um, of the entire relationship is the 2014, 15, 16 experience. You know, the important backdrop to remember is that Biden's son, Bo was quite ill at this point. Um, He was not doing well. And Obama was one of the only people that Biden told about all this. So he could see Obama could see Biden's personal anguish and that he wasn't doing well. At the same time, he 
So they were very close at that point and talking about that quite a lot. But at the same time, Obama was making a political calculus. He was making he had come to the conclusion that Clinton should be the person to replace him. You know, the first female president uh, following the first black president, you know, the the waves of progress move on. Um, And he had been, of course, impressed with how Clinton had campaigned against him in 2008, had never been impressed with how Biden had campaigned, you know, at any point as a presidential candidate. Um, but he never articulated this as much to Biden, but instead did a lot behind the scenes to make sure that Clinton was in a position to be the nominee. He had aides go and work with her or at least advise her. He was personally, uh, you know, quite encouraging to her. And he made clear to the public that he was not supportive necessarily outright, but, you know, positive about the idea of Hillary Clinton as a presidential candidate. This, of course, is very painful for Biden, who is sort of watching all this while grieving uh, because Bo passed away in May of 2015, but also, you know, while still saying, well, I want to run for president. Why shouldn't I be the natural next step here? So this is a very painful moment for them both as they can't really articulate to each other fully, you know, what it's very difficult for them both to fully say what they're thinking. Um, And this plays out over the course of many, many months. And, you know, that's a, a, a real rift in the relationship that to this day is still pretty raw. And it's one of the reasons, by the way, that Obama was not able to fully dissuade Obama or Biden from running in 2020, because he was skeptical of that, too, but didn't feel like he could say that after, of course, how 2016 ended. Um, and, you know, they still haven't talked about 2024. They don't talk about presidential elections because it's very painful for them. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's interesting and funny. And obviously, uh, there are very few people in the world that can have that type of conversation with each other. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, you know, I, I'm wondering, you know, with, with Biden as president, if if you can, you know, discuss just a little bit about the differences that you see between the two of them and their in their styles. Like I think something that, that you said at the very beginning is that when Biden was elected, it was seen as a third term of Obama. Yeah. Uh, what do you make what do you make of this claim? Clearly you, you don't agree with it. Right. Well, in in the early days, you know, Biden actually talked a lot about learning from the lessons about of Obama. And he talked about it explicitly, particularly within the context of um, particularly within the context of selling the covid relief bill that they passed very early on in the Biden administration. He used to say and his aides would say, you know, we learned during the Obama years, you got to go out and sell this stuff. You got to make sure the American people understand what's in these bills um, because we didn't do enough of it. And Obama didn't do enough of it. And that's what happened. That's why the stimulus was so unpopular in 2009. Okay, that's all fine for him to say. And they did sell it a lot. But of course, six months later, everyone forgot everything about that COVID relief bill and Biden had no political credit for it whatsoever. So pretty early on, he recognized that Washington was not as straightforward as he had like, long liked to say that it was when you become president. Um, but I think one of the big differences that you see now is that they have both real. Well, Biden certainly has realized that they just have different political skills. This was obvious from the start of their presidency together, of their time together. But, you know, one of Obama's go to moves was to try and give the big speech, get the country rallied behind him, get people really going on some political push that he was making. Biden still does this on occasion, but he's also very clearly realized that that is not where his you know, major political power lies. He's never been able to, you know, be overwhelmingly rhetorically, uh, you know, convincing or persuasive. So he doesn't try to be the mass, you know, reassurer of the country or the galvanizer. Instead, what he tried, although he does give big speeches sometimes, of course, most of his effectiveness is behind the scenes when it comes to negotiating with Capitol Hill, talking to senators. And that's something that Obama really didn't like to do at all. And, you know, I was wondering if you could if you could bring listeners uh, a little bit up to speed, maybe on things that aren't even included 
sure. in the book, if you'd like, uh, on on the state of the Obama Biden relationship. Yeah, they talk a lot, uh, certainly more than you might expect from a president and former president. Um, but but a lot is relative. You know, they talk every few weeks, maybe once a month on occasion. Um, and they're very important conversations for both of them, certainly for Biden. But it's not specific political advice. It's much more a check in. Someone once called it political therapy to me, and I think that's really apt. It's just they're the only two people who could possibly understand each other or who could possibly give each other advice at this point. Um they certainly still see themselves as having a joint political project, but both of them are also very wary that they have unique legacies at the same time. Um, and that both of their legacies, as I write in the book, are on this opposing sides of this anti-democratic abyss as they see the Trump years. And, you know, obviously they are very aware that that is threatening to come back in 2024. Um, as a result, they're thinking a lot about what that next step looks like. But as I said, they have not yet discussed the 2024 election. Instead, they're focusing on what do we need to be focusing on this instant to make sure that that election is free and fair, but also that Biden's uh, you know, accomplishments are being properly understood around the country. And for you, uh, uh, anything that you are working on now, obviously that this book it just came out and you're, you're still working yes. as an active reporter, anything that you're working on now in, in that function or any book uh, that might be marinating. Obviously, you don't have to. Yeah, <laughs> you don't have anything TBD on that. Yeah, yeah TBD on that. But I think that right now, you know, I'm focusing a lot on the midterms and I'm paying a lot of attention to how Biden, as he starts to think about what his legacy is going to be a little bit more explicitly, thinks about these midterms. Uh, well, I'll be watching also closely as Obama, you know, comes back into play here. But the broader question of how you know, day-to-day politics is going to continue to interact with these like massive questions about the future of democracy. Um, it's a sort of, now it is a day-to-day, now that is a day-to-day question. And that's a very interesting dynamic that I'm looking forward to exploring more in the final few weeks here before the midterm elections. Well, Gabe, thank you so much for being a guest on the New Books Network. Uh, the, the book is called The Long Alliance. Uh, I recommend people check it out. It, it's, a, it's also just a, a very interesting read because I think that, you know, these uh, these figures are so significant, and obviously, like we know the things that we see in the news about what they're doing, but it's uh, I, th- I think you provide a, a pretty interesting and fair uh, snapshot that isn't too laudatory or too critical of of the men. So, thank you so much. Thanks so much. 